Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. I thought, well, what's a more practical element of writing? <laughs> and I chose to major in journalism. So over time, it has morphed, and now I have a really clear sense of purpose. But in the beginning, it was like, okay, I know that I want to write. I know I want to make a living doing it. How can I make that happen? Life as a freelancer is not easy. In fact, it can be quite a struggle at times. But some freelance journalists prefer trading the security of a newsroom job for the freedom of blazing a path that matches their beliefs. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Abby Lee Hood bills herself as a leftist journo who mostly covers labor, politics, and queer issues. They also publish Bitchin' Pitchin', which is a monthly newsletter about how to pitch stories and other advice for freelancers. Abby, welcome to It's All Journalism. Hey, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we get guests a lot of different ways and people do pitch us and you know, you're the you're the pitch person and you reached <laughs> out to us and I found your pitch very intriguing because I thought I bet we have a lot of things to talk about. First off though, you know, in your pitch you build yourself as a leftist journo. You know, what makes you a leftist journo? That's a great question. It's one of those things that I don't What's the phrase? I don't I don't make any bones about it. Like I'm not shy about telling people my personal political leanings, but I would, I would say that it affects my writing in three different key ways. The first, being a leftist journal probably impacts more than anything the types of stories that I pitch. I'm constantly covering labor and marginalized communities, and I'm always looking for stories that sort of highlight the way the working class experiences national issues or breaking news. That's always a, a big focus of mine. So it really impacts the stories that I pitch and about 90% of what I write is pitched. It also affects my lens a little bit in terms of especially diversity of sources. I tend to focus a lot on, like I said, the working class. So a good example would be a story I just wrote about the plastics industry, which is much more fascinating than I expected it to be. So I was talking about the price of plastic, but what I really ended up focusing on was this contractor in Virginia who is finding it extremely difficult to stay in business because his operating costs have gone up so much. So that's the kind of way that leftism works its way out in my stories is usually just a focus on the working class or how news affects working class people. But I mean, of course, it also impacts my personal life, what I read and you know what I like to, I guess, consume. But I feel like a lot of people feel like uh, or would say or worry about, hey, if you're a leftist writer, then you're probably like espousing like socialism and Marxism. <laughs> and that's not the case. There's no big scary theory or political theory in my stories. It's mostly just that I'm a writer with an eye to the working class. So you'll find no Karl Marx in my writing. <laughs> Unless that happens to be somebody's name. If it's a historical piece and I need to cover theory or you know, Karl Marx's life, then I guess I would include him. But other than that, you know, it doesn't play a evangelical sort of role in my work. So are you at all concerned about, because of the way you identify yourself, that people might think that you would have a slanted view towards a particular cause and, and would be unable to, you know, cover certain types of stories in a fair and sort of objective way? Sure. I mean, I would say, I know my ethics and I know my morals. So it doesn't necessarily concern me, but it does concern others. 
And I know that because they've reached out to people that I work with. I don't share politics or theory on Twitter. And I say that because Twitter is the only social media that I'm really active on. So if you're, you know, trying to find out what I believe in or what I'm up to, that's really the only place to find me. So I don't, I don't share a, a lot of political ideas there. Sometimes I will, but mostly it's just, you know, what I'm writing, what I'm working on, what I'm doing in my life. And the thing about being, I guess, a leftist journalist is that, like I mentioned, I have lost work. People have decided not to work with me. One of my editors that I work with frequently said when I first pitched her, someone said, hey, don't work with Abby Lee because they're a leftist. And so they are activists. That's just what I know about. Right. So I know that there are people who like come to my profile and go, no, thank you. And to them, I say good riddance. Like, look, I'm not a wealthy individual by any means. Okay, I'm very grateful for the work that I do have. I get by and I do okay. But I guess what I'm saying is there's a certain amount of privilege to be able to say good riddance to those people. And I do copywriting to make ends meet because, you know, obviously journalism rates for freelancers are often, unless you're churning out a lot, it's difficult to make a living. So I guess it's a roundabout way of saying like, I wouldn't want to work with those people anyway, because if you've read anything that I've written, you know that I include a variety of sources. I try to be as fair as possible. And there's a difference between fairness and objectivity. But yeah, I mean, I, I know what my morals are and my ethics are when it comes to reporting. So I'm not really worried about it, but I guess there are other people that are worried about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, these are probably the, the hardest set of questions that I'm going to ask you because sure. just so you know, we've had a sort of an ongoing discussion on the podcast with lots of different people over the last few years, younger journalists who are expressing a lot of frustration about working in newsrooms and, you know, they wanted to sort of, you know, I want to cover a particular event from a particular perspective, or I want to be able to talk on social media about my politics. And, you know, you're telling me I can't do that because that's going to impact the objectivity of the, of the news source. So this is kind of a, an ongoing dialogue, I think, with a lot of people. You know, they see stories on the news that they have a particular, you know, position on and that somehow want to get involved. And there's a sort of fear of becoming, you know, less of a journalist and more of an advocate for a particular side. Are you concerned that you might just be viewed as an, somebody who's just doing advocacy as opposed to journalism? Sure. Well, I got called an activist this morning because I emailed a state senator who voted for and sponsored a piece of, well, multiple pieces of anti-transgender legislation. And I used the word anti-LGBTQ. And his response was, well, that's biased you're an activist and you're prejudiced because you use the phrase anti-LGBTQ. So in my opinion, you're going to get called an activist if you're anything other than far right. Like anytime you're interacting with elected officials or any source who has, you know, a particular set of views, unless you fall into that category, they're going to call you an activist for something anyway. So it's important for me to live by my personal morals you know, and I know that my pieces are sound. Like I spent hours last night sending statement requests to 60 legislatures. It's not like I'm not giving people a chance to, you know, share their opinion on why they think that legislation or whatever the story may be about. But I'm just giving an example from the story I'm working on at the moment. You know, I'm giving them the space to say, hey, this is actually why I think this piece of legislation is beneficial. And then I'll report it if they give me a statement. So to me, there's a there's a big difference between fairness and objectivity. And I think one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard, and I wish I knew who said it was 
you know, if one source tells me it's raining and one source tells me it's sunshiny, it's not my job to report both sides. It's my job to look out the window and see which is true. And so for me, it's really important to call out inequality and to highlight marginalized voices. I don't think that's unfair. But like I said, even if you use the word LGBTQ, like I'm still getting called an activist, even for that like basic language. So it's like, hey, if I'm going to get called it anyway, I might as well just write and live my life in a way that aligns with my personal morals. You know, and like I said, that does mean that you lose work. I'm not here to say that it's easy, but I will say as a freelancer, you know, I am grateful that I'm not in a newsroom where people are kind of like limiting what I can say and who I can be. Doesn't mean that it's easy, but it does offer me some freedom that perhaps staff writers always get to have access to, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I see that trade off. And I think that that's something that people don't always talk about that, you know, oh, I'm going to be a journalist. I, I want to do these types of stories. And if you end up working at a particular type of newsroom, you know, you're going to going to have to ask yourself these questions about what do I want to cover? You know, am I comfortable covering this? Can I be ob objective? I'm not saying that anybody in any sense is compromising. It's just, you know, this is something you kind of have to deal with is to the type of journalism that you do and the choices you make. I mean, you present yourself very clearly who you are and what your perspective is, and you're finding work. You know, journalism is a funny thing. A lot of people, they see things so much into as left and right about everything. And there's so much stuff that we write, stories that we write about people you know, are struggling for, for various different reasons or, or good stories that we tell about people that have that really have next to nothing to do with politics that have value in telling. I don't know. It's just, you know, just one of these dialogues that we always need to keep having in our heads about, you know, what we're doing in our with our writing, what we're doing with our reporting. Anyway, when I do a podcast, I usually start out by asking the background, but you laid out some intriguing things in your in your pitch and i wanted to get sort of get that out of the way first but tell me how'd you get involved in journalism i hate to be that person that's like i always knew i wanted to write <laughs> that's, that's um, everybody i talk to <laughs> i know and i'm so sorry because i i know that's cliche but when i was in kindergarten i started my own encyclopedia and i started <laughs> trying to do like i think i did an entry about a kangaroo and then maybe i dropped it and moved on but i was always interested in writing and then you know, I did and still do want to write fiction, but I couldn't bring myself to major in fiction in college. It just felt really not practical. I, and I'm not trying to insult fiction majors. It just wasn't going to work out for me. So I thought, well, what's a more practical element of writing? <laughs> and I chose to major in journalism. So over time it has morphed and now I have a really clear sense of purpose. But in the beginning it was like, okay, I know that I want to write. I know I want to make a living doing it. How can I make that happen? So you're a freelance writer, you live in the Nashville area, and you, you know, kind of specialize in pitches. You said before that you pitch, you know, all your stories you're pitching to different outlets. And what's your process for recognizing a story that you want to write and, you know, locating an outlet that you think will be a good place to pitch to? And then we can sort of talk about the pitching, actual pitching process. And I, I don't want... if my editors are listening to me right now. I, I do get commissions from time to time. It's not to say that I don't get commissions, but the majority of, of what I write is pitched. And 
I think an easy way to sort of think about finding stories is through frameworks. And I have a few favorites like localizing national news or taking a local story and writing about how it applies, you know, to a more national audience. I would say I do this most often at Tennessee Lookout. It's a publication here locally that I write for quite frequently, you know, because it's top of mind, like this anti-transgender legislation, even though it's happening on a nationwide level, I'm always looking for, okay, well, how does that impact the business community here? How does that impact actual transgender Tennesseans? Who are the businesses in Tennessee that are donating to candidates and to legislators that are pushing this, you know, these bills? So you can do it both ways. You know, you can find a national story that applies to your local audience and vice versa. I like to go about it in terms of frameworks, but of course, frameworks don't always you know, work and, and they overlap as well. There's some other ones like finding trends. Hey, here's an example of a trend. Something I'm pitching right now is the helicopter arm, which is like a thing that kids are doing on TikTok, where when you get your vaccine, you wave your arm around in a big circle and supposedly it helps with the soreness. So that's a trend that I've been pitching a story about recently. Don't scoop me. I'm waiting to find a home for that. So <laughs> anyway, I find that frameworks they make it really easy for me to find a focus and to make it pitchable because to make a story pitchable, like you said, you also have to find the right publication. And so, you know, local news, well, that's going to narrow it down to a certain subset of publications here in Tennessee, national news. You need to at least make sure that that publication has a, a vertical or a subject area for that particular story. So it's all about, you know, doing a little bit of research ahead of time. Although there's no shame in like coming up with a pitch and then trying to, find a uh, publication that it fits in like Googling publications. There's nothing wrong with that. But as long as you make sure that it has, you know, that vertical and that they cover say long form or short form or reviews or whatever genre it is that you're pitching, you've at least done most of the work to set yourself up for success. Yeah. I've done some freelance work here and there besides my day job. And one of the things that I found is it's helpful to, well, obviously you want to look at the publication to see what they've got there, but to have a sense of who the, the audience is, where does that in your consideration? You know, I, I think it's a little bit of a column A and a little bit of a column B. Like the angle of my story is not going to change drastically from publication to publication. Usually I would say a lot of that is done on the front end, i.e. like if I think this story is a good fit for this publication, then I don't necessarily need to tailor the tone that much to a specific audience. I'm just going to write the story that I intended. But, you know, there are some publications that cover, let's say, like I think Cosmopolitan is a good example because there have been publications that I really struggle with the voice and tone with. Like I pitched a story about labor laws and labor what's the words I'm looking for? Basically, I, I pitched a story about a labor malpractice in the crystal mining industry and how crystal miners are often, you know, put at risk, not given PPE. It's a really dangerous profession. So that feels like a really serious story because it is. But then when I pitched it to Cosmo and it was published and the editing process was fine, it was a bit of a, an adjustment because they have a very sort of conversational tone. They have a very... I guess you would say maybe young or millennial voice using really like familiar language. And that was unfamiliar to me. So it took a very long editing process. And I'm not complaining about that because, you know, you have to um, deliver copy that makes sense for the publication. So it does, it does happen. 
But I would say that I try to correct for that on the front end. And instead of having to, you know, change my story's tone drastically, I just try to find a place where the pitch itself is going to be a good fit with that publication. And also, you know, I would say that I probably won't continue pitching a lot of like conversational types of pieces just because I'm not good at it. There are writers who are great at it. Cosmos is a great publication. I'm not saying anything bad about them. It's just that when I go into reporting a serious labor story like that, it's really difficult for me to write in a way that I'm unfamiliar with, if that makes sense. Right. At the beginning of my career, I was, because of the situation I, I happened to be in, I was a freelancer for, you know, maybe five years. And I always found the thing that, that I found the most wearing about it was just every day you're constantly selling yourself. You know, for me, that just, just kind of wore me out. And so it's like, I, I would look for gigs that, you know, had sort of longer term, you know, writing a regular column or something, because at least that gave me some stability. I didn't feel like, you know, I've already convinced this editor that, you know, I know how to write and get on deadline and, and I turn a good copy, but the constant, you know, trying to generate story ideas and, you know, find places for them, it was, was just such a, a chore. I mean, is this something you you sometimes you feel you have to deal with? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I used to pitch once or twice per week, like have a session where I would sit down and send pitches. And now I found it more sustainable to sit down and maybe 20 to 30 minutes sort of manage my crop of pitches, whether that's, you know, sending new ones or passing on rejected ones, but even more so than just like the daily toil of selling yourself via email, i.e. like pitching editors, you know, part of the way that I present myself on social media is also about like branding. You can't just be a journalist anymore. You can't just say, well, at least a freelance journalist. I mean, if you have a staff job, it's one thing, but you can't just say, okay, well, I'm a freelance journalist and that's it. Like myself included, every journalist I know does copywriting or PR or marketing or some other gig. Um, you know, I've worked part-time in a coffee shop for before the pandemic for a brief period of time. And I still do a lot of copywriting. And earlier when you were talking about not necessarily, like you said, compromising, but adjusting yourself to the tone of wherever you work. Like I, I experienced that with copywriting that resonates with me because I often find that I do have to sort of like compromise and even just like write about things that I don't necessarily care about because I have bills to pay. So there's a lot of elements to freelancing that include, you know, being a brand and you, you do have to know how to market yourself via Twitter and Facebook to try and get work. And I would say that's one of the things that I enjoy the least. And I was thinking about tweeting about it the other day, but then I didn't because I didn't want to be, you know, rain on anyone's parade. Yeah. Well, but thank you for, for saving it for the podcast. <laughs> you know, I hear you on this. And, and sometimes what happens when you're, when you're a freelancer is you, and I think maybe you do this a little bit because you talked about the types of stories that you write, you end up becoming an expert or a go-to person to write about certain subjects and then suddenly you know suddenly you're a tech writer or suddenly you write about podcasts or you write about you know toys or whatever and so then your your pitching becomes more targeted at a certain audience and sometimes that's good sometimes that's bad because often you in those situations especially if you get some sort of you know column situation where you have to write a regular you know you've got to turn in something on a regular basis that the trouble then becomes generating stories around a particular subject. You know, you might have one great idea for this one publication for this one story you're going to write, and they want you to do something like that every, every month. And you're like, I can't think of 
a new story about this for a long time. Sometimes you can. I mean, it's it's a challenge for sure. So tell me a little bit about Bitchin' Pitchin', your newsletter. <laughs> yeah. That name is so funny to me because it was such an accident. I didn't know what to call that thing. And I just kind of landed on that and no one seemed offended. Like I asked people if they were offended by the name and I, no one seemed to be. So I kept it. Bitchin' Pitchin' is in a season of change. It is at its core, a newsletter that comes out every month and it includes a pitch from myself and at least one other pitch from another writer. Sometimes I have the money to pay that writer for their pitch, but regardless, they're always pitches that worked. There are so many resources for freelancers and there are so many calls for pitches and I think that's really great. But it also occurred to me that it doesn't really matter if you know who's asking for pitches if you don't know how to write a good one. And so I wanted to share pitches that landed in publications covering all manner of things. Like I would say that I have three sort of main beats, you know, labor, video games, and music. Those are the three things I write about most. Usually my music coverage is also like bluegrass Appalachian adjacent. So the first and last beat are kind of the same, but anyways, and then the video game beat just keeps me sane. But, <laughs> but um, Bitchin' Pitchin is a resource for freelancers. But like I said, it is in a season of change because I've recently heard some, I guess you would say criticism or feedback that a lot of the newsletters that popped up for journalists during the pandemic feel a little opportunistic. And I'm trying to figure out how to add more value to Bitchin' Pitchin. That's something that's a real concern for me. So I've done interviews with really awesome writers like A.C. Shilton and Stephen Hale who are both superb investigative journalists. But I've also tried to, so I have this audience of about 2,500 people like on my email list. And I thought, okay, well, what's a way that I can do something that feels more impactful and bolder? So I introduced a co-op press that I have been fundraising for. And that's kind of the future that I see for Bitchin' Pitchin' is less as a educational platform for freelancers, like just a monthly newsletter, and more as a cooperatively and worker-owned publication that is region-specific because I feel like offering work to writers is maybe more impactful than just offering them things to read. So, you know, it's still a work in progress. There's still lots to be done. But like I said, at its core, Bitch and Pitchin sends pitches that worked that landed in local and national publications so that writers can uh, maybe learn a thing or two. One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking was that, you know, I've at various times in my, my career, I've had opportunities to be an editor who deals with freelancers. And I always, you know, I always look for freelancers who were, well, you know, wrote good copy, you know, got their stuff in on time and had interesting ideas. But a large percentage of the people who pitched at me, it was just, you know, they didn't understand my my publication. They were giving me something that was too general that didn't talk to my audience at all. And occasionally, a lot of it was just it was just too unprofessional. It was just like, you know, hey, I have this idea to write this. And the person may very well be a good writer, but there's no sense from them that they are. I don't know. That was my perspective from that. Did you ever have an opportunity to uh, work with freelancers or to hire freelancers? Well, I haven't hired freelancers, but I have certainly seen probably a couple hundred of their pitches because I edit pitches too as part of Bitchin' Pitchin. And I would say that I've seen a lot of the same things that you have. When you were talking about that, I was like, boy, I bet we've seen the same stuff. Because 
there's an art to pitching. Like you said, doesn't necessarily revolve around whether or not you're a good writer. It's a different sort of art. I see a lot of pitches that are extremely long. It's so clear they want so badly to sell the story idea and I get it. But what I tell people is that like, you know, if you're pitching an editor who's put out a call for pitches on Twitter, probably that person has three or 400 emails in their inbox. They don't have time to read half of them, much less, you know, whichever one you happen to be. So I hate to put rules on things, but I try to keep my pitches in total under 250 words, less if I can, you know, but some other mistakes I see are very similar to what you said, not being specific enough. Like I try to tell writers that uh, really specific narratives are sort of, I hate again to use marketing terms, but it works like the blue ocean concept. There's a marketing person who put out, you know, a, a sort of book about if you're basically fighting in the same bloody water, like say you want to do hot takes or do pop culture criticism. There's nothing wrong with those things, but so are a lot of other writers, right? Like a lot of other writers are doing that. So if you want to do hot takes in pop culture, you really need to find really specific narratives. Try to find something no one's writing about. Find takes that no one has pitched before because I've edited so many pitches that were so similar and they were good pitches. It's not that they're not good, but you know, your editor can only take one out of every hundred revisitation of Britney Spears. So if you're pitching stuff about that, you really need to make it not necessarily unique, but find a specific set of sources that add expertise that you don't have. Because I, that's also something I see a lot is people will be like, I want to write about X, Y, Z. And then they don't necessarily list the sources they're going to, be talking to. So unless it's an op-ed, you have to have those details in there. Yeah. I used to, uh, to set up interviews. I would identify people that I wanted to write about that I wanted to interview. And then I would establish an interview. And then I would go to a publication that I had in mind and say, Hey, I've set up this interview with, you know, John Smith, would you be interested in the interview? And, you know, and they share some clips maybe of what I had. And, you know, those seem to work well a lot mm -hmm. of the time. So then it was more a matter of, okay, sort of like what you were saying is, you know, identifying your, your sources that can be super useful. The other thing is I still get, you know, I'm not hiring freelancers. I'm not able to where I work at now, not that I particularly want to, but I still get pitches that are just so freaking boilerplate that, you know, it's the same thing that they've sent to, you know, 20 other outlets. And, you know, as soon as I, you know, as soon as I see that, I just like, no matter what they're writing about, but then the, the other, other hand is the thing, the types of pitches that always excited me were somebody had that real interesting take or was going to bring something different to the table, whether it's, you know, the person they were interviewing or the topic and, you know, how it applied sort of what you were talking about, the identifying an interesting story and pitching that, I don't know. But, you know, what in general, you know, you're a freelancer, you've talked a little bit about pitching, you've talked about, you know, generating stories and communicating, you know, what advice would you give to somebody who's freelancing? <laughs> so many pieces of advice to give. You only have one. <laughs> if I can only pick one, I think the, the one thing I would say is don't be afraid to suck real bad because everybody does suck real bad, especially in the beginning. And I would say the only thing that's gotten me to where I am, and I'm, you know, really proud of like bylines in the New York Times and the Washington Post. But the only thing that got me there was really just the audacity in a lot of ways. There are a lot of things working against me. I don't come from, you know, generational wealth. I live 
in the middle of nowhere right now, and even Nashville is not a hub of journalism, there were a lot of things that could have stopped me, including imposter syndrome. And I still have imposter syndrome. But when I started sending pitches to national publications and landed like my first story in Teen Vogue, for example, I just kept forging ahead, even though there were those voices in your head that were like, well, are you good enough? And I just didn't listen to them. So in a world when, you know, people of color, writers of all colors and other marginalized people, disabled people, queer people are left out. And sometimes just even by not living in a coastal city can mean that you're left out of journalism. You sort of have to have the audacity and that means you're going to suck at first and it's okay. Like I've made a lot of mistakes. You know, there are people who think that I follow up too aggressively or think that I'm in a really aggressive freelancer. I'm, and that's probably the case. Like I'm not perfect, but I don't think too hard about the mistakes that I make. You know, I pitch, I pitch and I pitch, I joined a union, I network, and then I pitch some more. And then I read some people who are doing good work. And then I pitch some more. Like at the end of the day, I don't let anything deter me from pitching. So no matter who you are or where you are or what you want to write about, you can do it with a little audacity and with a little, you know, being unafraid to not be very good. Because if you go back and read some of my work, like in the early 2000, well, like early 2012, 2013, it's not very good. (laughs) It's not. But I've gotten better over time and you will too. Yeah, I echo a lot of that stuff. I, I, I would put it in terms of, you know, you got to develop a, a thick skin and you got to you got to step up to to bat every day, knowing that the most, you know, most of the time you're going to be out there striking out. But to one of your points about imposter syndrome, people with imposter syndrome, myself included, people who deal with anxiety, myself included, you know, journalism is like the <laughs> journalism, journalism is like the worst career to be in and being a freelancer is the worst of the worst if you have anxiety because it's all down to you and especially if you're you know in the middle of nowhere working by yourself you know it's a little different when you you, that's why you kind of crave sometimes to get into an office where you have you have interaction and you can kind of get some degree of feedback you know that's another thing it's sort of related to thick skin but understanding it's it can be lonely and and hard sometimes i think that's the other thing i would say it can be so lonely and i you know like i'm sitting at my grandma's table in you know southern rural tennessee right now and i have lived in cities at times it's not like i've always lived in the middle of nowhere but in terms of loneliness you know I have really good writerly friends that I've made, you know, either at school because I did major in journalism or on Twitter. And I set up phone calls with them because the other thing I would say about, you know, the difficulty of being a writer of any variety is that you're going to get criticism. I do from time to time get pretty concerning emails that include threats because of the nature of the work that I do. So I feel like it's important not to romanticize freelancing because I love it. I wouldn't give my life up for anything. Like I'm so incredibly grateful that I said I wanted to be a writer and now I am like, how crazy is that? But it's important, I think, to point out that like there are, you know, occupational hazards and death threats are one of them. And so is loneliness. So in general, my self-care and mental health routine is pretty um, vital. Like before this, because of those emails I got this morning, that was like really stressing me out because I'm non-binary, obviously. So, you know, hearing from people who wish that transgender people didn't exist is really upsetting. So before this email or before this interview, I was playing Rocket League (laughs) to decompress. 
So even just simple things like that, like putting joy back in my life, protecting myself and making sure that, you know, later today, I'm going to check in with one of my friends who is a Chicago journalist and very excellent at what she does. And that's kind of how I take care of myself because you're right. It can be lonely. And when you're just you at your grandma's table, sometimes it gets overwhelming and you should ask for help and reach out to people who care about you because uh, it's good for you to do that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. People have been talking about, you know, the stress that journalists have been under, you know, the last few years and, and people are talking about, you know, when to get help and everything with it. But again, my, one of the problems I had with freelancing was that I lived in my office. And if I, if I was not in the room where I did my writing, my office came with me because most of my work was in my head. You need to get out of your head. You need to talk to people. You need to create situations, you know, changing situations and environment. Manual labor as crazy as it sounds, helps me a lot because, you know, you mentioned that you struggle with anxiety and I I do as well. I was diagnosed with PTSD a few years ago. So for me, it's the same way, you know, when journalism is not a job that you clock out of, you know, I was sending emails at midnight last night, which I don't advocate for, but when it's on your mind, sometimes you have to get it over with to sleep. But I find that like, you know, hiking or planting my garden or weeding the garden or mowing the yard or working on my bicycle, like my motorcycle, not my bicycle. I don't have a bicycle, but doing things with my hands gets me out of my head. And I realize not everybody has the opportunity to do that, but that's why I love living in a rural area right now, because I can get outside literally anytime. And I have room here to grow a garden. I'm going to get some chickens and like that counts as self-care, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's amazing the journey that we just went on, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Abby Lee, how can people uh, subscribe to your newsletter? Sure. You can probably the easiest thing to do is to find me on Twitter because my Patreon link is there. I mean, it's Patreon backslash bitch and pitchin. But if you come find me on Twitter and you have questions about, you know, the publication I'm starting, or if you want to ask freelancing stuff, like I don't bite, you can come talk to me anytime. My DMs are open, as they say. So I hope you'll come over and say hello, because, you know, I like to meet other writers. And bitchin pitchin is without G's. I should say no G's. In the Southern style. (laughs) Yeah. Just, Just want to make sure everybody understands that. Abby Lee, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content nick capre wrote our theme music Emilio brust helped with our booking steph thomas is our social media manager and i'm your host michael o'connell thanks for listening